One, one of the things that I think we can all learn together as we land this book of Genesis is that a rescue plan requires certain ingredients, okay? And so a rescue plan requires, one, a problem that's too big to be fixed, okay? And so all throughout, you see Genesis 3, it's a problem too big to be fixed, and God says, I have a rescue for that. In the story of Joseph, what we've been reading is that they've got this massive famine that's about to conquer their, their little area. It's a problem too big for them to fix, but a rescue plan requires a problem that's too big to fix. A rescue plan requires a person willing to surrender to the rescue. And what we're going to see is that Joseph's brothers, they have to surrender to the rescue. Abraham had to say yes to God's way. Noah had to say yes to building the ark. And you and I have to surrender to the rescue. If you're a lifeguard, imagine swimming out to 20 feet of water to rescue the guy who's flailing around, and they never surrender to your rescue. They're going down, they're taking in water. You're like, hey man, I got you. I'm going to get you out here. You're like, no, I got it. I got this. No, dude, you're drowning. You are going down. At some point, that guy either surrenders to you rescuing him, or he goes down and he takes you down with him. But it, it takes a surrender to the rescue. And the, the third thing, and this is an important ingredient, is that it requires, a rescue plan requires a willing rescuer of sufficient power and authority. And, and what's going to happen in the story of Joseph is that we find out that he's given all this authority and he's given all this power and it's sufficient enough to rescue his brothers. This is what a rescue plan requires. But we're going we're gonna to pick up in Genesis 42. Um, before we read it, can I, can I tell you um, just like, parent to parent, um, like a parenting win. I, I love when there's a parenting win because if you're like me and you're a parent, you have like 20 losses and 20 failures and 20 times you said the thing you wish you didn't say and you sounded exactly like your mom or dad, but then you have these one or two moments, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm an excellent parent. I should write a book or something. And so this is one of those moments when, when my oldest son, who is now seven, uh, when he was about three years old, some reason, somehow, some way, he got in his head that he wanted a flu shot. Like, he just, like, he was all about it. And you think, you know, really, though, just, you know, like, it was like, uh, Luke, do you want to go to, you know, like, Six Flags, or do you want the flu shot? I was like, man, I want the flu shot, Dad. And so we'd drive by CVS, and he'd see the signs, like, get your free flu shot. I was like, Dad, can I get a flu shot today? I'm like, no, son. <laughs> we got places to be. We got things to do. We don't have time for the flu shot. But, Dad, I want the flu shot so bad. He would cry. Kid you not, in the back of the car, Dad, I want my flu shot. I'm like, son, you don't even know what you're saying. Like, you're just, you're just going crazy. And so mom and dad, you know, you can call it good parenting, but we caved and uh, we, we go to get the flu shot. Because, I mean, if, the way that these signs read, if you don't get the flu shot, you're going to get Ebola or something. Like, it, it's really severe. And so you have to go get your, your flu shot. And so as a family, we go to, I think it'll CVS, we go get the flu shot. And Luke, when we pull into the driveway, he's like, Dad, can I get my flu shot? He's like doing the same speech. I'm like, yeah, so you can get your flu shot. And you would have thought I announced we're going to Disney. Like, oh, flu shot. He's like telling everybody as we're walking in. He's like, I'm getting my flu shot. And the clerk's like, poor kid's going to his funeral. And so like everybody's really upset. My son's excited. And we go to the back where the little nurse is. And so the whole family gets in. I say, Luke, uh, do you want to go first? You want dad to go first? He's like, oh, dad, you go first. You go. I'll let you have this little, this little win. I'm like, all right, cool. And so so I, I, I'm, I'm a big man. I don't like needles. Just little putting that out there. I don't like getting stabbed. Okay. And so like the, the lady comes out with a needle. I'm like, hey, go, go easy on me. I'm trying to impress my son. I don't want him freaking out and she's like okay and she like slams it in there and I'm like yeah cool I took it I didn't I didn't flinch I didn't cry I didn't do anything even though I wanted to I didn't want my son to see me 
And he's excited. He's like, Dad got his flu shot. Mom, can you believe Dad got his flu shot? This is great. I'm getting my flu shot. And he said, son, you want to go next? I said, yeah, I want to go next. And so with three-year-olds, they don't do the arm because, I mean, they don't have guns. And so they go for the leg. And so we roll the, the, little, the little shorts legs up. And it's like, son, are you, are you okay? I'm ready. Getting my flu shot, Dad. All right, we're going to put the alcohol on. All right, put it on. Are you okay? Here it comes. Yeah, I'm ready. And he's like this. She goes, all right, you're going to feel a little pinch. And so she takes that needle, goes right into his leg. He goes, ah. and like it all just melts away in that moment. He's like, ah. And he looks at me. He looks at mom like we failed him in some way. Like, son, we told you this is going to hurt a little bit. You get that little knot in your leg. He's like, it hurts so bad. And, and we protected him from the flu that year. Or, or maybe we didn't. I don't know how flu shots work anymore. But, but we wanted to, and we wanted to rescue him from potentially getting the flu. And what it turns out in Luke's little three-year-old head is that whatever he thought the flu shot was, it was not that thing. I still don't know what he thought it was. It was definitely something different than he thought it was. And what it turns out is that the rescue plan that my son needed from the flu isn't the rescue plan that he planned on getting from the flu. He planned on getting a fun ride somewhere and like a golden ticket to Charlie's Chocolate Factory, but he got something different but he got what he needed. And what we may find out by the time we land this plane in Genesis is that the rescue plan you and I are really hoping for isn't exactly what we need. And the rescue plan that we actually get is what we really, really need. So let's open up uh, Genesis 42, and let's see what's going on in Joseph's life. Let's remember where we left off. Joseph has gone up and down, up and down. He was in slavery, and then he was brought to Potiphar's house. Then he was thrown in prison. Then he was brought out of prison. Pharaoh raises him up, and he tells Pharaoh there's going to be a big famine, but we have seven years of plenty. Joseph, I'm done pharaohing for a while. You go pharaoh for me. Joseph becomes the governor of Egypt. He's kind of a big deal where he's at. Um, he raises up all this grain. He gets all this, but then the famine starts setting in. And so where we left off last week is that the famine just started to set in. And everybody, not just Egyptians, but everybody is going hungry. And now even Joseph's family back in Israel, who dad thinks Joseph is dead, if you remember that, the rest of the brothers, they've been living in guilt for who knows how long. We're 10, 15 years or more after the time that they sold their brother into slavery. That's a long time to live with guilt. And they're getting hungry now. And they know that Egypt has some food. So chapter 42, verse one it says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Favorite line. I, I love how dysfunctional this dad is. Why are you guys just sitting around staring at each other? Go do something. Now, they're, they're, they're shepherds. They're supposed to be like raising flocks of sheep or goats or whatever shepherds raise. And, and the, they're getting hungrier. The famine is there. And dad looks at them like, stop staring at each other and go do something. And dad's like, come on, I said, go do it. That's what he's saying here. He says in verse 2, and he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So, Ten of Joseph's brothers, there are 11 left at this point, so one of them's getting left behind. Ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Uh, Joseph and Benjamin share a mom, Rachel. Um, and so I guess, I guess Jacob's like chosen a new favorite son, and it's Rachel's son. But Benjamin doesn't go. Uh, and it says... Uh, 
for he feared that harm might happen to him. That's a long time after what happened to Joseph for him to be thinking this. If you've ever experienced a tragedy in your family, maybe you have a sense of how long that feeling of dread and that, that feeling of like, man, what if that happens again? Like, it's been 20 years. I know, but it's as, it's as real as yesterday. And that's what Jacob's feeling right here. It says, verse 5, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, you and I, we live in a world where we just go to, like, Market Basket, and we get a nice steak, or, you know, like, we get what we want when we go there. Am I right? Like, you get hungry, you, like, you waiter it. That's what we did yesterday. I kid you not. Ashley and I are like, well, who wants to go buy food? I don't, I don't We'll just have them bring it to us. How spoiled are the Loftons that we just waiter lunch to our house, and, like, it just magically appears? That's what we did. I had taco salads. They were delicious. Um, this, this, we don't have a category for famine in America. And so I was, uh, it came to me, I was talking to First Service, and I was thinking, you know, if, if you were living here during one of the hurricanes, especially the last one, you know what this feels like, where, okay, uh, food is going to be a necessity. You go to the grocery store to get food, and everybody went to the grocery store to get food. There's not a lot of food there, but there's a little bit of food there, and there's stuff to buy. You, you, maybe, maybe you remember, like, I wouldn't say getting an argument, but maybe you remember, like, that sense of fear. Maybe you remember, like, everybody out of everywhere showing up at the same place. That's kind of what's happening here. Egypt is the only market in town that has any bread. It has any, any grain, any food at all. And everybody out of the, the known world, all, out of all the region, are showing up there at the same time to buy this grain. But Joseph planned ahead. Joseph is the only market basket in town who planned ahead and had enough grain for everybody to eat. Let's see how this unfolds. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came uh, and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember that the brothers got mad about a dream about bowing down to their brother. And now here it is. It is finally happening. The dream is coming to pass. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And I wonder if that was like a test. Like, you kind of look like my brothers. It's been a while. Where are you guys from? Oh, my hometown? Okay. And it says in verse 8, he repeats himself. It says, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph's been gone a long time. He's kind of a big shot where he's at. He's probably dressed nicer than he was with the coat of many colors. That's gone. That's old story. You know, he's got new robes. He walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. And his brothers show up and he recognizes them, but they don't know who he is yet. Verse 9, and Joseph remembered uh, the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of this land. You come to see what we don't have. Are, are we going to fall? Are you going to invade us? Verse 10, they said, oh, no, my Lord, your, your servants have come to buy food just like everybody else. Like, you got to imagine, that would be really weird. You're the only one in market basket and the manager hollers at you from the back. Hey, you, are you stealing from me? Like, no, dude, I'm just... <laughs> just shopping like the other 300 people here. That's what Joseph does. He just calls out these people right where they're at. He says, uh, we're honest men. Uh, your servants have never been spies. Verse 12, he said to them, no, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, no, hey, we are your servants. Uh, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. We're not an army. We're just, we're just a family. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And they have no idea that the one that they're talking about is the one that they're saying is no more. Joseph had to have been like, 
Oh, man, you sold me as a slave? Imagine what he could do. What kind of power does Joseph have as governor? Like, any, any little brothers ever want to get back at their big brother? Little sisters want to get back at their big sister? Be like, one day I'm going to rule a country, <laughs> and I'm going to dominate you. He says, um, but Joseph said to them, verse 14, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Now, after the third time of saying this, they've got to start getting nervous. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. You're going to prove yourself. You're going to go get that brother that you say that you have, but I'm only going to let one of you go whether there's truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. If you don't do what I'm saying, you just prove to me that you're spies, and I won't tell you how we handle spies. Verse 17, and he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, verse 18, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. He has like a change of mind here. Verse 19 says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain back home. He says, okay, all right, I'm going to flip this around. Instead of all of you staying and one of you going, I'm going to let one of you stay. They let Simeon stay. The rest of you take your grain and go home. Like, I'm going to fill up your bags, you buy all the grain you want, you go home to your family, feed them, but when you come back, you need to bring Benjamin back with you. So says, verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. A little threat in there, that's got to feel good, a little zinger in there, a little brother be like, <laughs> or you're going to die, or mom's going to get you. It just doesn't feel the same when it's mom. And they did so. Verse 21, then they said to one another, now they're, now they're talking to each other. Have, have you ever, um, anybody ever go to like a, a, a restaurant or something and everybody speaks English except like this one group of people and then they start talking their own language, right? You're in a situation like that and you're sure at some point in there that if you could understand what they were saying, they were talking about the way you were dressed or like the spinach in your teeth or, you know, like your hair was disheveled. Like you know that they're talking about you, but you, you don't. You don't know? Some of you are like, you don't know what it's like. I, I started uh, training myself with Duolingo. It's a little app you can get on your phone. You can learn any language you want. Try it out. It's free. It's great. So I started learning Spanish. And like three weeks after I started learning Spanish, I'm in San Antonio, and I'm walking. I got my kids. And I heard a lady talking about my kids in Spanish. And like this is my first, like, oh, I know what she said. But she said something like, I could eat him or something like that. And I think it's like what nice people say when like, oh, he's so cute, I could just eat him. But I, I, in my head, I thought they were threatening cannibalism in, in the mall. <laughs> you never know like who knows what language you're speaking. The brothers start speaking their own little Hebrew language, thinking nobody in this room knows except Joseph. He's a Hebrew. It says that there's an interpreter between them. So maybe Joseph had forgotten the language as he has an interpreter, or maybe Joseph just remembers the language, but he hears this conversation between his brothers. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. Ten years, 15 years or more later, when they look at their problems, they go back to that sin that they did with their brother so long ago. Have you ever carried something so long that every time something bad happens 10 years later, it's like you go back to that one thing and you're like, you can't even forgive yourself it was so bad? That's what these brothers are doing here. So as we saw the distress of his soul, when he begged us and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. That's why this guy's threatening us. 
Verse 22, and Reuben answered them. Remember, Reuben was the one who had a plan to save his brother. He said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're arguing with each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Like All of our problems are because this thing that happened so long ago. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. They took Simeon, the brother, tied him up right there in front of him and said, you guys go. And verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. All the money that they would have spent on the grain, they put it back in the sack, but the brothers don't know it yet. And to give them provisions for the journey, this was done for them. Verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. Minus Simeon, now you have nine of the brothers going back. They've, they've, they're losing brother after brother. Their problems are multiplying. And as one of them uh, opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, they were like a day's ride out of there, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, and he says to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Here's, here's where we're at. We're supposed to believe all the way up to Genesis that God has this master plan worked out. He's going to rescue everybody, and he's rescuing everybody through a specific family. And that family is this family that we're reading about right here. They've sold a brother into slavery. They're about to die of famine. They can't figure out whose problems is whose. They're blaming each other. And you're telling me that God can figure out how to make his rescue plan work from this nonsense, this train wreck of a family? Man, if it sounds hopeless right now... I've got good news for you. I mean, one, I I can tell you how it ends. Two, if we see our families or our situations as impossible train wrecks, that maybe God's rescue plan can make it all the way through from there. They left Benjamin behind because dad was so scared to lose another son, and now they return back to Jacob, and they say, hey, we lost Simeon. Uh, He's left back there, and he mourns. He's like, what are you guys doing? Like, you're, you're killing off my family. And so they cry. Uh, he says, hey, we're supposed to bring Benjamin back. He says, no way. He's not going to do it. And they start eating the grain. They just go back to normal life for a little while. Who knows how long that takes? I wonder how much grain they had. Because they didn't, like, the, the trip has to be like a month of a trip. That's, like, it's a good distance. So you travel a month. How much food do you have to get through that month? And how much food is worth the trip? You don't get just a weekend's worth of sandwich material. You get enough food, right? And so they, they're gone for months. Leave Simeon behind. They've already lost Joseph. They're eating on the food, but they run out. And so chapter 43, we'll skip forward. I'm going to read just a few verses. We're going to start hitting the high points here. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, like, they are now out of food again, because their solution was only temporary. Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And now they have this back and forth, like, what are you talking about? I'm not letting you take Benjamin. You already lost Joseph when I sent him to you. You've lost Simeon now. There's not a chance in the world I'm going to let you take Benjamin. Dad, we're all going to die. If you don't do this, we're all going to die. Well, if I send Benjamin, I'm going to die. And so he finally lets Benjamin go. He says this. He says, I'm telling you this, though, Judah. If you ever return here without Benjamin, it's going to kill me. I am going to die of heartbreak, and you will be the one who's at fault. But go ahead. Take Benjamin. Go. Go back. Go back to the land. 
We pick back up in uh, chapter uh, uh, 45. Uh, the people go back to the land, and um, Joseph sees them from afar. They're scared to death. Joseph sees them from afar, and he says, hey, uh, let's have a feast. Go kill the goat. We're going to have a barbecue. Anybody like barbecue? There's a famine everywhere. Everybody's looking for food. They have a big barbecue to welcome Joseph's family. They go inside. He sees Benjamin. He hasn't seen Benjamin for a long time. It is his full brother. It's his only full brother out of all of them. They share a dad and they share a mom, and he weeps when he sees his brother. He has to excuse himself because he's so torn up by what's going on because his family's jacked up. And he has this feast, and he lets the Israelites sit here and the Egyptians sit here, and Joseph sits at his own table, and he has the best meal ever. And he makes sure that a little bit of food goes to everybody. But for Benjamin, the Bible says that he gives Benjamin five times as much food. So basically, Joseph thinks about meals like my Nana thinks about meals. Like, if you don't eat enough food, you're sick, something's wrong with you. Jesse, have you had seconds? Nana, I don't need seconds. Look at me. No, honey, you're going to get your seconds. And so, like, you get a whole plate of food just to make Nana happy, and then you eat a thousand more calories. Joseph gives Benjamin five times more food. Imagine what that would look like. Okay, everybody gets a peanut butter jelly sandwich, peanut butter jelly sandwich, peanut butter jelly sandwich. You get the Scooby-Doo five times peanut butter jelly sandwich. Like, Benjamin, it's obvious getting treated different, and who knows why. Maybe, maybe Joseph is showing favoritism. Maybe Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they're going to turn on him like they turned on him. Who knows? But at the end of this meal, he says, okay, you guys uh, take your money, and uh, you guys go, uh, and we'll let you go back and get dead. But he slides a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, and he sends them on their way. And now he sends his guard. He says, hey, go. Uh, someone stole a cup. Bring him back to me. Whoever stole the cup, bring him back to me. And he goes, he rides out there, and he starts with the oldest brother. He says, empty your bag. There's money. It shouldn't be there. Empty your bag. Money. It shouldn't be there. Empty your bag. Money. It shouldn't be there. Empty. Gets to Benjamin. There's money and a silver cup. Why'd you steal that silver cup? I didn't. I didn't do it. Um, you're going to be put to death. Come on. Let's go. And so they take him back. You guys go on to dad. It doesn't matter. And Judah remembers, if I go back without my youngest brother, my dad's going to die. It's going to kill him. So he goes back and he argues with Joseph. He says, listen, if we go back, our dad's going to die. And the story breaks Joseph's heart that he quits playing games with them anymore. He, quit, he quits putting on the show anymore. And he says, listen, you guys don't know. I am Joseph. And they cry together. They don't believe him, of course. At first, they don't believe anything he says. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, you were about to kill us a moment. Like, I'm just messing with you. Uh, but I am your brother. Is my dad still alive? Is he going to make it? Because remember, that trip takes a long time. Maybe he died while you were gone. Is he, is he going to be okay? Is he okay? Yeah, okay. Here's what I want you to do. Um, you guys just go get dad. Bring dad. Bring everything. Bring it all back here. We're going we're gonna to get to fix this. I'm going to let the whole family uh, stay here together. Uh, in chapter 46, Jacob and Joseph meet for the first time. And Joseph goes to his dad and says, Dad, I'm your son that you lost forever ago. Imagine, like, he had his son's funeral. He's been mourning this this entire time, and now he sees his son is alive. Not only alive, but he's pretty successful. He's doing great. And the Bible says that they weep a long time. A long time. Everything about this family is heartbreaking. Even, even the victories are heartbreaking because there's so much turmoil in the midst of this. But they weep a long time. And Jacob says to his sons, he says, now I'm ready to die. And he starts preparing for his funeral. He gets ready for it. He dies a little while later. And his brothers are so scared after the funeral, like after dad's dead, like, I think Joseph might kill us now. <laughs> like, they, maybe he was just keeping us alive for dad. And so they go to Joseph and they try to, you know, ask for forgiveness or whatever. They're like, we'll be your slaves. And Joseph goes, no, man, I, I forgive you. 
Here's what Joseph says in chapter 50, the very last chapter of Genesis when he's wrapping all this up. He says, he says, what you meant for evil, God turned for your good. You intended for me to go through this junk because you hated me, but the God that we serve is so powerful, so wonderful, he turned it on his head and he made it not just for my good, but for your good as well. He protected all of you. And what's baffling to Joseph and what's baffling to me is that in all of that jacked up family where the promise of the rescue made it all the way through, that God was able to work it out all the way. Let me remind you of what we said at the top. A rescue plan requires a few ingredients. A rescue plan requires a problem too big to fix. We can't fix this famine and we can't fix our family. It's all messed up. It's too big for me to fix. A rescue plan requires a person willing to surrender to the rescue. The brothers could have said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to bow down to you like I told you I wasn't going to bow down to you. Or no, I'm not going to put myself in that situation again because you might kill me. The brothers had to at some point surrender to it. And a rescue plan requires a willing rescuer of sufficient power and authority that God had placed Joseph in a place of authority that was sufficient enough to meet their needs. The point of Genesis is to point out that the rescue plan is still on all the way through. And remember, Genesis was written by Moses, and Moses is writing this to the first time to the Egyptians, and, or excuse me, the Israelites who were being pulled out of Egypt. And what's fascinating about that is because when Genesis leaves off, it looks like the problem is fixed. The famine is off. We're rescued. We're living in the land of plenty. We're good. Except it turns out a few hundred years later that all of those people end up in slavery. And what they thought was a permanent solution was, in fact, only a temporary solution. And now the people still wait for a permanent solution. At the beginning of our service, we took this Lord's, service, uh, this Lord's Supper because Jesus is the permanent solution to our problem that we try to fix with our temporary solutions. The rescue plan succeeded because you and I have a reason to worship. John 3.16 reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now the son, the son of God would have to have sufficient authority to accomplish a rescue plan, would have to have sufficient power to accomplish a rescue plan. That whoever believes in him should not perish. To believe in him is to submit to his rescue instead of our rescue, to submit to that. Should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's a rescue that can save all of it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What we pull out of Genesis is that temporary solutions don't work, and they never have. So many of us, we try the temporary solution and our families fall apart. We make mistakes. We become addicted to our temporary solutions. We see families break apart because we thought that this marriage over here was not worth it. Or the workplace is too stressful. I just need a new job. I need to get out. That's what's going to fix this. You can't pay the bills. I know what I need. I need more money. You're sad all the time. What I need is some medication. And God gives temporary solutions and there are temporary blessings. He blessed the Israelites and protected them from the famine, but in honesty, it was temporary. What we need 
It's a permanent solution. And what the Bible says, the permanent solution to our real problem, the problem that began all the way in Genesis 3 that broke all of the cosmos, is that Jesus has sufficient power and authority to rescue us, and he is willing to rescue us. Another word for rescue or savior. But the question remains, are we willing to submit to the rescue plan? Are we willing to live life God's way? And so as we exit, as we're dismissed, the application is that. In your families, in your workplace, in your school, in your classroom, when you're talking to your teacher, when you're talking to your boss, when you're talking to your siblings, when you're talking to your children, when you're talking to your parents, are you willing to submit to God's way over whatever temporary ways we might have for a solution? And it may turn out that the rescue plan that we need isn't the one we've been praying for, but we get the one that we need.